0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is my favorite talk, and not just because I give it. I give the other ones, too, in the past. I've given all these lectures. But, but just because I feel like um, uh, this is uh, it's one of the most practical um, of the of the six or seven lectures we have in the series um, because it will t- what I'm t- going to try to teach you over the course of the next you know hour or so is what to do when things really go bad uh, in the wilderness when your resources are limited when your equipment is limited and how some pr- fairly basic things that you do or things that you take with you in order to be able to do these things can really save someone's life and uh, I titled this Backcountry Trauma and Improvisation, but it can also be titled sort of MacGyvering in the Backcountry when things go bad. Um, And this is our case. This is actually a real case that happened to be slightly amplified just for the purposes of illustrating um, some other things that we can do uh, in the wilderness. So this is a 30-year-old helmeted mountain biker who catapults off the front of his bike down an embankment. He is on his side lying unconscious, bleeding from his mouth and nose. He has noisy respirations and crepitus in his right chest. I'll explain what that is in just a moment. He has a branch in his right leg with lots of bleeding, and he has a briskly bleeding wound from his scalp. So this, I mean, I don't think it takes uh, anything more than a small child to say this is a sick person, right? This is someone who is desperately in need of some aid, and we are in the middle of nowhere. So what do we do? And this is one of the most important things to remember here because the first thing you're going to do is take a deep breath. You are not effective when your adrenaline is going, when you're anxious. You are effective when you are calm. People say, well, what if that person is going to die in that time that I take to you know, go through my meditation protocol? I'm not talking about a meditation protocol. I'm talking about take a deep breath because what will ha- if that person is going to die in the time it takes you to take a few deep breaths and calm down, that person is going to die anyway. Okay? So take a deep breath, stay calm, and survey the situation. Was this an avalanche that took this person down? Did they fall off a cliff? Are they in briskly moving water? Were they taken away by a riptide? Um, What circumstances surrounded this person's accident? Because the last thing you want to do is create more victims, okay? Either yourself, the rescuer, or other people. Let's say you're leading a group, other people in your group, okay? You don't need more than one victim. So survey the situation and make sure that it's actually a safe one for you to go into, okay? And then the next thing that I always encourage you to do is you think you know, even if you're, you're out with your friends, you think you know your friends. You don't know your friends as well as you think. People have all sorts of diseases, HIV, hepatitis C, all kinds of things which you can't undo. So if that person has blood or body secretions, take a moment. And this is one thing I always carry with me, okay? I carry this. In my first aid kit, I carry a pair of gloves, okay? I do not want to get, I want to help somebody, but I don't want to get sick myself, okay? There's a lot of blood in this scene, so I'm going to put on my gloves. I happen to have glasses on. If you have sunglasses, everybody, everything, anything like that works. You don't have to have anything special. Um, generally speaking, you know, if you're in the outdoors, you're going to have some sunglasses. Leave them on, okay? Then when you go up to someone, always identify yourself, okay? Because that's going to give you a a lot of information about what's going on with the person right away. And we'll we'll talk about some of that information, but, you know, you can tell if someone can talk to you, they can breathe, okay? They have a patent airway, and they can breathe. And sometimes, let's say you come across someone who's kind of at at the bottom of an embankment, and you're like, oh, my gosh, they just fell off. Well, what if they're just taking a nap, okay? You really want to go up to someone, hi there, my name is Judy Klein. And they're like, oh, hey, yeah, this is a gorgeous spot. I was just taking a nap. You don't want to start, you know, Freaking someone out and doing things on someone who has just taken a nap, okay? So, so identify yourself. Plus, it's just really nice to do that, you know? I would say, hi there. My name is Judy Klein. I'm here to help you. I get nothing, okay? Okay, what I do get is, what kind of sounds am I getting here? These are bad sounds coming from someone. That snoring. And as we go through this, we'll see this, the fact that this person is really sick, And this last thing is super important, okay? Activate your resources early. Pretty much after you've done your initial assessment and the key things that you need to try to save this person's life in the field, what you can do, you wanna activate your resources, whether that's calling on a cell phone, which may or may not work, activating a spot device, sending people down for help because I can tell you right now, this is someone I'm going to need help with. This is not something that I can just manage in the wilderness and say, and he's going to pop up off the ground and walk out of here. Okay, so it takes a lot longer to get a a rescue uh, to happen than you can possibly imagine. All right, so activate your resources early. Okay, so in emergency medicine, we are simple people, particularly when it comes to... Uh, bad situations. We want what to do in a bad situation to be like, just just roll right off our tongue. So we come up with very simple mnemonics um, or you know memory devices in order to tell us what to do in what order. And these are the things that this person needs in this order in order to live, okay? And this is really important because the order of these things is the order they need to do things in order to, they need to have these things be okay in order to live. Sometimes spectacular things like this are the things that occupy our attention. That's not going to kill him. That's not the thing that's going to kill him first. It's what's going on up here that's going to kill him first. And it's really important to do these things in order and check that these things are okay in order. Okay? So A, B, C, D, E. Pretty easy to remember, right? So we're going to start at the top. A is airway. And how many of you have taken a basic life support course? BLS course. A lot of you, great, okay. So BLS teaches you that one of the first things you do when you come across someone um, is, is uh, you know, who may whatever, in this case is injured, is, sick, is that you open up, you open up their airway, okay. In this case, this person catapulted off the front of their bike and had a mouth full of, what kind of things might have been in this person's mouth? Dirt, saliva, blood, saliva. teeth, all kinds of things these are not things that are good in someone's airway. They block up someone's airway, particularly someone who's un- like kind of unconscious or semi-conscious and may not be able to spit these things out. So BLS teaches you that you look inside, you take two fingers, and you, you sweep away what you see. You don't do blind sweeps. Okay, I'm just going to dig right in there and, and see what I get. Don't do that because you could end up knocking things further in. Okay, So I put my fingers inside, and I grabbed out a ton of dirt, saliva, blood, and frankly, part of a tongue before I realized that it was actually, it was just this bloody mess, okay? Um, and these were all things that, that could potentially be the cause of this noisy breathing. This noisy breathing is because his airway is blocked, okay? So I swept aside everything, but his breathing is still noisy. So BLS teaches you two things you can do in order to try to open up that person's airway. And these two things both help pull the tongue off the back of the throat. Because in a person who's conscious, unconscious or semi-conscious, that big muscular tongue gets all loosey-goosey and it can fall into the back of the throat and essentially make it so someone can't breathe because their, their airway is blocked. So anybody remember the two techniques that, that BLS teaches you in order to get that tongue off the back of the throat? So when somebody's demonstrating the chin lift, right? What's the other one? The jaw thrust. I'm going to demonstrate both of them, and you tell me which one you think is better to do in someone who's fallen over the front of their bike the chin lift or the jaw thrust? Jaw thrust, right. What does the chin lift do that we don't want? It just totally hyperextends the neck. So, no chin lift when it comes to trauma. We do jaw thrust, and what the jaw, now this is, you can try to do this on yourself. It's actually really hard in a conscious person, because we have lots of really strong muscles in here that keep us, keep us from being able to like put something in the vocal or jaw and loosen it. Okay? In an con- unconscious person, that muscle, um, that muscle has no tension in it. Okay? So I can pull that jaw forward and pull that tongue off the back of the throat and voila, no more noisy breathing. That big muscular tongue was just hanging out in the back of the throat, blocking off his hairway. And that's the thing that this jaw thrust can save someone's life because it pulls that tongue off the back of their airway. And all of a sudden, they have a nice, patent, like nice, you know, uh, uh, conduit for air to be able to go through. But I'm sitting here trying to, there's all kinds of other things going on with him. Can I just stand here and do this? No, this is not a very good use of my time. So how can I keep that tongue off the back of his throat without standing there? Well, in the ER, we use something like this. Um, Anybody of the medical students know what this is or anybody who's an EMT? So this is a nasopharyngeal airway, okay? We put this inside someone's nose like this in order to... This essentially keeps the tongue off the back of the throat. It's a hollow tube okay? We put it through the nose, it goes down the back of the throat, and it keeps the person's tongue off the back of the throat and leaves a nice kind of hollow way for air to get in and out, okay? I don't have one of these when I'm, you know, in the back country, but I often have one of these, okay? This kind of looks like that, doesn't it? Right? Okay? So you can cut down a a camelback tube, Um, and it will serve the same purpose, okay? And the way you want to cut from nose To kind of like right the edge of the ear here that's the length that you want make it a little bit longer so a little bit sticking out of the nose so you can pull it out you don't want it to get stuck in there that'd be a bummer right okay and this will mimic the same thing it will keep the tongue off the back of the throat what if i don't have this okay if i don't have this i'll tell you one thing i always have now there's a couple things i keep in my first aid kit and i never i like i always have to have this because this thing is so useful and it's used for so many different things that it's one of those, like, it's an essential for survival. And that's a safety pin. Okay? Safety pins are like, you know, the survivalists, like, you know, dream. Because there are so many things you can do with it. And here's the first thing. You can save someone's life with it. So this is what you can do. If you're trying to get someone's tongue out of the, out of the back of the throat, you hold on to their tongue, put a safety pin through each side of the tongue. You have to put two. All right, because one will rip right through. So imagine I have two safety pins in his tongue, all right? I take a shoelace. Most of us will have a shoelace when we're hiking, right? And I thread it through the two safety pins. Now these are pulling on his tongue. I can tie this... <laughs> I can tie this like to his belt. I can tie this to a shirt button if he's got a shirt on, and this is pulling his tongue out of the back of his throat. This is saving his life. Now, people have asked me, what if they wake up while you're doing this? <laughs> well, great. You've solved your problem, right? <laughs> you're now conscious. They're going to be able to, a conscious person can control their tongue musculature, okay? So first way in which a safety pin can save someone's life. You heard it here. Yes. Okay. So um, uh, the last thing I want to talk about is, and by no means am I advocating you go out and do this if you don't feel comfortable doing it, Okay. Let's say you come across someone, you've done all these things, you've swept their airway, you've done a jaw, thrust, a jaw thrust, they're still not bleeding and you have a strong reason to believe that this person has choked on something, that there is something lodged deeper down than you can see, either because you witnessed it or somebody else witnessed it and there is something blocking that airway that's keeping you from being able to open it up. Okay. Um, this is sort of like that, this is the, the heroic thing you see on, you know, in movies that people do where they put a knife in someone's throat in order to save their life. As I said, I'm not advocating you go out and do this. I'm just going to show you about sort of what's involved and why it works, okay? So if someone has something stuck here, okay, they can't breathe. So what you're going to do, I want you to use, uh, take a feel of your own neck anatomy to figure this out, okay? So if you wanted to make, let's say if something's stuck here, You want to make a a conduit to the world, to the air, lower down, okay? Because this person is dying of lack of air, lack of oxygen, all right? So what we do is, and this is easier in men, you feel your Adam's apple, okay? But in women, feel that there's like a big, right in the middle, there's a big cartilage, um, kind of like the harder. It's not bone, it's cartilage, all right? And below that, if you go in the midline, there are fleshy spots, okay? They're kind of soft and fleshy. All right, if you you extend your neck, you can feel it even better. Okay, extend your neck, you'll feel it even better. And it's in those fleshy portions where you can actually um, put something into that airway to provide a conduit to the outside world. So, what I would do is I would take a knife. All right, I'm not gonna hurt him, don't worry. Okay, I would take a knife, I would slit the skin. I'd actually do this from the other side, frankly, because I'm right handed, but I'm gonna show you just for the sake of illustration. I would slit the skin. I would find that membrane, his Adam apple is very prominent here, I feel the membrane right here and I'd stick my knife in there. I'd turn my knife a little bit once I felt that rush of air. Okay, so you're going to, when you finally get into that trachea there's going to be a rush of air because there's a ton of air now backed up in those lungs because the air hasn't been able to go out. Now I've got to put something in there, alright, in order to be able to uh, provide a conduit to the outside world depending upon where you are, there's all sorts of things that can serve that purpose. A straw. Sorry, all I had was bamboo straws at home. This is like Marin County, right? All I have is a bamboo <laughs> straw zone. Okay, but you can put a straw in there. People have used, you know, ballpoint pens. Nobody has ballpoint pens anymore, but, you know, you can use the hollow portion of a ballpoint pen. You can use a Camelback tube, okay? You know, this is sort of like, uh, this is something that I kind of figured out, you know, uh, in, in the air. We have these, this is the, the part of a, a you spike an IV bag to give someone IV fluid, okay? You can cut this off right here, and this is super sharp. You can do the whole thing just with this, okay? And then provide some um, air. Now, you can blow, then blow through that tube, give them air, give them oxygen, and that's the way you do this, okay? Not at, don't do this at home, okay? <laughs> you have to feel comfortable doing this, but it, it, there are many ways in which to improvise these procedures. And remember that this is something you're doing to a dead person, if you don't do it, they're dead. You can't. I, t- as I tell my residents, you can't kill a dead person. Person's dead. Okay. So we're gonna end, and I'm no and and that's that. We're not gonna like talk more about that right now. Okay. So what comes after A? B. Yeah. B. B comes after. So the next thing that BLS teaches you is to is this sort of look, listen, and feel. Okay. I'm gonna put my. I have done this. He's got the safety pins in his tongue, but you know, not for real. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put my ear right here to his to his uh, um, mouth and what i'm listening for are his breaths i'm feeling for his breaths on my cheek and the other thing i'm doing by getting down to this level is i'm looking for the rise in his chest okay do i see both sides of his chest rising together okay or is one moving and the other one's not moving all right that would be an important thing notice that means something's wrong with one side of the chest, and that's exactly what's going on here. This side of the chest is not moving. And then I put my hands on his chest, okay, and I'm feeling his breaths. And what I feel on this side are what I call, what I refer to in that sort of little, little case narrative as crepitus, okay? There's two different kinds of crepitus. There's that crepitus when you break a bone. Have anybody, who's broken a bone? That feeling of bones moving, broken bone, like bone ends moving on bone ends, it's really horrible. It's gross, actually, to feel. But you can feel that with broken ribs, okay? You can feel the ribs, a broken rib, pieces moving um, uh, against each other. But then there's another kind of crepitus, which is um, uh, really unique. It's a unique feeling, and once you feel it, you'll never forget it. But it kind of feels like Rice Krispies. who, who's even sees Rice Krispies anymore? I don't know, but when I was growing up we had Rice Krispies and we have Rice Krispie treats so people probably know how to work with Rice Krispies but it's that feeling when you run your hand over Rice Krispies of like little crunchies and what it is, is it's air that has dissected from the chest wall, from inside the lung cavity into the skin, okay? And if someone has crepitus, that feeling of Rice Krispies under the skin in their chest. That means they, they have a hole, they have they have a hole in their lung. They have a hole and air is leaking out from the lung around now probably into the area around the lung and is creeping into the tissues of the skin. Okay? And that it's really helpful because um, it tells me a lot about what may be going on <laughs> with this person. Because it, it tells me that this person has something called a pneumothorax. Alright? So the other thing that I can kind of look at is what's his respiratory rate? A normal respiratory rate for us is what? Who's ever counted their breathing, right? What? Yeah, 12 to 20, Twelve, you know. But if someone's breathing at a rate, like, let's say they're breathing 30 or 35, something's wrong. Something's wrong with their respiratory dynamics, okay? Um, uh, the other thing that um, you can look at is... Are they using extra muscles to breathe? When we use extra muscles to breathe, we use our belly, we use neck, neck muscles, sometimes we use our nose muscles. So you can get a lot of information about whether or not someone's having a difficult time breathing, okay? Um, let's say uh, I look, listen and feel, I put my hand on the chest and there is no chest movement at all, okay? I've opened up the airway, there's no chest movement, maybe even I f- even feel for a pulse, we'll talk about it in just a moment, and there's nothing. And this is what happened to this person. Okay. Do I start CPR? Most of us are going to start CPR because it seems like the right thing to do. Okay. BLS teaches us we do compression-only CPR. Okay. We no longer give rescue breaths, except in children. We no longer give rescue breaths. We only do compressions on the chest because that's the thing that saves people's lives. Okay. But the problem here is this is not someone having a heart attack on the street. This is someone who's tumbled down an embankment and has had such a massive injury, either to the head, or they're bled, to their bleeding so massively in their chest, or their abdomen, uh, that they have stopped breathing and uh, they have um, no pulse. What are your chances of, res- of resuscitating that person by doing CPR? Throw out a number. 30%. Go lower. Zero. <laughs> pretty much, you're pretty much close to zero. And the reality is, this is the same if their accident happens five blocks from us at San Francisco Journal. Okay. Someone who has this kind of accident and stops breathing and they lose their pulse as a consequence of, 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 of the accident, they've had such a massive injury, either to their head or they're paralyzed or internal bleeding, that it's almost you know, it's, it's virtually never that they get brought. And certainly if you're in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere, the chances are pretty much never. And I tell you this not because I, I want to stop your humanitarian instinct to go and try to resuscitate this person, but I just want to give you license to stop. If, if you're exhausting yourself, you're exhausting your resources, you're putting yourself in danger because you're in an avalanche path when this happens or whatever, you know, that your chances of success are low when someone has a full arrest in the wilderness. Okay? There are a couple exceptions. As always, there's exceptions. Dr. Colwell mentioned one of them, and and that is drowning and hypothermia. So cold water drowning or someone who gets stuck out in the cold, all right, and you come across them and they seem dead. Alright? Those people aren't always dead. And and I'm not going to go more into detail, but but that would be a situation where I would start CPR. I would keep doing CPR as long as my resources allowed for it because that person has a chance of success. And the only other situation which we'll learn a little bit more about next week is lightning strikes. So what lightning does is it causes a part of your brain, um, it's called your medulla, which is responsible for making you breathe unconsciously. It kind (coughs) of resets it. And sometimes it doesn't start up again for a couple of minutes. So if you see someone struck by lightning, you run over to them, they're not breathing, doing CPR on that person for a couple of minutes can save their life because their own breathing mechanism will, will kick back in again. Okay? Uh, most people don't, won't actually die of lightning strikes if, if there is someone there that's seen it um, if the, because they will start breathing again on their own if you support them for that couple of minutes. And that would be a circumstance in which I would probably give them rescue breaths as well, not just compression only. But I'd also give them rescue breaths because that's the problem. They stopped the breathing um, because their brain has been reset by that massive charge of electricity. Okay, so let's say I want to. The reason why the BLS changed from doing um, rescue breaths to compression-only CPR is because of the UCK factor. Okay, most people don't want to kiss people they don't know. They don't want to swap spit with people they don't know, um, and yet here I am asking you to do that. But I'm going to give you a sanitary way of doing it. Okay. I always carry three gloves, not two, I actually carry more than two gloves, but, but you can use a glove to provide a barrier to do rescue breathing for someone, okay? Take a, take a glove, You know, tear or cut off the middle finger, all right? That's enough of a hole, okay? I can put this over his mouth, okay? And I can do breaths right through that. And that provides a barrier so that you're not having to put lip to lip and, and you know, if you're concerned about transmission of diseases and yet you can provide rescue breathing, all right? So that's the poor man's, poor man's uh, protection from, for rescue breaths. Okay. But in this guy, that's not the case. He's actually breathing, but his right chest is not moving. He's got crepitus in his right chest. He's breathing at like 40 times a minute. Um, I check his pulse, and it's really thready. He's dying of something um, that I, meant, I used the term pneumothorax. He's actually dying of something called a tension pneumothorax. And I've put a picture of this right here, um, and... This is the lung right there. There is air escaping from the lung, and this is the air, and it's compressing that lung, all right? So that lung's not working, but the problem is there's so much air in that lung pushing, pressing that lung, it's actually pushing everything in the chest cavity over, all right? And when it does that, what happens is that it can compress the heart, it compresses all the blood vessels that bring blood back to the heart, and eventually the person will die because no blood can return to the heart. So this is one of these things, you can't really wait for someone to solve this problem, to, you know, for rescue personnel to solve this problem. This is the reason why I carry, and if you, you, know, if you have access to medical equipment, this would be the one piece of medical equipment it would be great for you to get, okay? Uh, if you're a medical student, you definitely have access to medical, or nursing student, or whatever, okay? And this is, a, this is an IV catheter, all right? And you want a big one, because what you can do, is what you want to do is you want to vent that air, you've got to get that air out of there so that that there isn't so much pressure on everything in the chest, all right? And the way to do this is you go right below the collarbone. You pick a rib high up, all right? Pick a rib, and you go over the rib, and you stick that needle straight on in, and you're going to get a big rush of air, all right? And that is all that air that's putting pressure on the rest of the chest. I push the catheter in. Okay, we're going to kind of pretend we're doing this here. I push the catheter in, and I hold on to that catheter because there's so much back pressure hit there that it's going to explode out of the chest if I don't hold it there for a little bit, okay? Now, there's, um, if someone is super obese, this catheter may not go through. I'll go to the side here, all right, away from the breast, um, uh, but always over a rib, all right? There's all kinds of blood vessels, nerves you don't want to hit that are under the ribs. so you always go over the ribs, all right? I would do this only in the circumstances where you suspect a tension pneumothorax. The person is having a lot of trouble breathing. They're breathing really fast. That side of their chest is not moving. Maybe you even feel that that crepitus, that Rice Krispies underneath the chest on that side. Okay? That's when I would do it to try to save somebody's life. Yes? Can you just clarify over the ribs? So feel the ribs. And if you feel it on yourself, okay? You can feel the top of your ribs and the underneath your ribs. So the top part of the rib, kind of the one cl- the side closest to your head, and the bottom part of the rib. You can kind of roll your finger over it. You want to go on the top part of the rib, the top closest to your head. Because underneath, there's all kinds of things you don't want to hit, like blood vessels and nerves and such. Yes? Isn't underneath the rib the top of the next rib? <laughs> no, there's a separation between your ribs. Um, like hugging it. So your rib cage, the ribs are, go, go lower down. You'll easily see the, the separation. Okay, do you see that there's, there's, there's tissue, there's like soft spots between your ribs. Go on the side. Those are the, it's in those soft spots that you're going so that the ribs are separated from one another. That's a good question. Yeah, those of us who've seen bodies like, uh, know that, yeah. Yes, but that's sometimes hard to pick up. Yeah. So the, I'm sorry, the question is, would your trachea, your windpipe, get pushed to the side when someone has this? And yes, it can. It would get pushed to the side because everything's being pushed. It would get pushed away from the side where all the air is accumulating. But that's a tough one sometimes to pick up. So, you know, but if you see that, all the more reason why you want to intervene, okay? Okay, sometimes... The problem is not air leaking out from the lung. Sometimes, and this has particularly been true in, in our wartime, is someone gets something that um, makes a hole in their actual chest wall. In the case of um, you know soldiers, it's it's IEDs that have been throwing shrapnel, creating holes in chests. It could be a stick, you know, something could have impaled the chest and created a hole in the chest. This is something a little bit different. This is something called an open pneumothorax. It's or a sucking chest wound you might have heard, where there's a hole in the chest that communicates with the the lung cavity, all right? And that's the source of air. You're getting air that every time the person takes a deep breath, air is getting sucked in to that chest cavity, all right? Also creating a situation where the person's going to have a tough time breathing, all right? So in that setting, we actually want to cover that up. We want to keep air from, where's my duct tape? Oh my gosh, thank you so much. It's the other thing that I can't do without, okay? Um, We wanna cover this up because we wanna keep air from sucking into that chest cavity. So let's assume that there is actually, there isn't in this case, but let's say there's a hole in that person's chest cavity right here, okay? I wanna cover that up. You can use a baggie, part of a garbage bag. Um, People use silver foil. I find that plastics are a little bit more adhesive um, when you're taking a deep breath. But you want to put that right over the chest cavity. And this is another thing that's invaluable, okay, as, an, as, a, as something to have with you because you can improvise so many things with it, and that is duct tape. You can fix your car with duct tape, okay? You can, like, do so many things with duct tape, all right? And one of the things you can do is cover up an open a uh, sucking chest wound. Now, um, we want to cover it up but we also want to make sure that when the person breathes out, there's a way that air can get out. So imagine if I have it, and hence the taping on three sides. If I tape it on three sides, when the person takes a deep breath, what's going to happen to that, that baggie? It it's going to <gasps> adhere to the chest. But when they breathe out, there's a way for air to escape. Okay? Because you don't, want it to get, you don't want to create a situation where the air that's in there, it's trapped in there. Right? you want to create a, a way for uh, there's egress of air, so I tape it on three sides. Okay, any questions on that? So the question is, if you suspect a tension pneumothorax and you're wrong, and you put a needle in there, what are the consequences? Almost nothing. Pretty much nothing because it's so small. You won't hear. You'll put it in and you won't feel hear that rush of air. There will be no rush of air. Pick it out. The lung, if it's it, the lung heals itself quite easily. Frankly. What can happen is you get the wrong side. So if I really suspect that I, the person has attention tension pneumothorax and I put it in on one side and it's not working, put it in on the other. <laughs> Honestly, there's, you know, once again, we go back to it's very hard to kill a person who's trying to die. All right. Any other really good questions? Yes. Do you have a range of what depth the needle does in it? I know it depends on how deep they are. So how deep do you put the needle in? Hubbit. Okay, most of the problems that people, that people come up with is it doesn't go far enough in because people have tissue between their skin and the chest cavity. So all the way to the hub, to the to end of the, needle. yeah. Yes? What if you want to put on this plastic bag but there's an impaled object? Okay, excellent question. What if there is, you want to put on this plastic bag but there's still an impaled object? We are skipping ahead but we're going to answer this question. Do you pull the impaled object out? Show of hands, who pulls out the impaled object? Who leaves it in? Okay. Why? Yes. Why do we leave it in? Anybody? It's a plug in a hole. What, did you put? What, what does it have a hole in? What is it sticking through? Okay. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. Or Actually, I'll just talk about it now. Um, you don't know whatever that thing is plugging up. If you pull it out, you have to be prepared to deal with what is going to bleed when you pull it out. This is actually believed to be the reason that Steve Irwin, we talked about this last week, Steve Irwin, who was the victim of multiple uh, stingray barbs, large stingray barbs, into his chest, it is believed that one of those barbs went into his um, uh, right ventricle. And uh, he pulled it out. He pulled out all the barbs. And that might have been, who knows? But don't ever pull out impaled objects. Um, those things, even in the emergency department, we don't do it. We have them go to the operating room where there's a surgeon ready to repair whatever it is that hole is through. So the way I would do it is I would, I would put a hole through this, uh, leave the stick sticking out, and put some duct tape around it to try to seal around the stick. Okay? That's what I would do. Okay, so this is a really good question. The perver- this victim was on her side. Generally speaking, um, do we leave people on their side? Do we leave them on their back? Um, generally speaking, it is much easier to do things to people on their back. All right, so unless there is a reason not to put them on their back, I, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but I carefully, hopefully with another person around, roll them onto their back. On very rare occasions, um, including this one, actually, but for the sake of demonstration, I haven't left him on his side, um, you have to leave someone on their side because they're bleeding so much, for example, out of their mouth that they would constantly be choking on their blood. All right? Does that make sense of why you might leave that person on their side? The problem is that at that point you have to be protecting their spinal cord on their side, and that's a little bit more of a labor-intensive thing, all right? So I hope that answers your question. In this situation, we actually did leave this, this patient on her side, his side. It was a her, but now it's a him, uh, because, um, because of so much bleeding from the airway. Okay, I'm going to go on, hold your question, keep, uh, well, we'll keep going. I, I think some of the questions that you have I will definitely continue to answer. Okay, so after A and B comes? C. Wow, C, go figure. Okay, as I said, we're simple people in emergency medicine. We don't, we don't want to have to remember too much. This stuff needs to kind of just roll right off. Okay, so what can we do um, about C? C it stands for circulation. Number one, if the person is not laying down, you want to lay them down. It's a lot easier for your blood, for your heart to pump blood to your head if they're laying down than if they're sitting up okay so laying down is a really good position we can tell a lot about someone's circulation how much blood flow they have going you know how much blood volume they have if they bled a lot by looking at them most of the time people are nice and pink their lips are pink you know their skin should be nice and pink it should be relatively dry if we try to do something called the capillary refill time test um, and you guys can do this on yourself take your arm generally speaking you do this on your torso but I don't want everybody lifting their shirts up in here we don't need that right so take your arm Push down and when you release, notice you get a little bit of, it gets white when you push down because you you stop the blood flow to that area. You release and it should really within, unless you're really cold, within, you know, two seconds it really should get the color back. Someone who's losing blood will not, who's lost a lot of blood um, will not have good blood flow to their skin and they will not have that brisk, what we call capillary refill time. It'll be a lot more than two seconds. So those are all things. What would worry me is if someone was pale, okay, uh, if they're cool, um, if they're sweaty. Sweaty means that your adrenaline is going because your body's trying to save its life. And then if they have this delayed cap refill time, those are all bad things. We can also get some information about someone's blood pressure by measuring and, and feeling for pulses, okay. Most of us can, are pretty good at feeling for the pulse in our wrist, okay. So go to your thumb side, you feel the pulse in your wrist. Everybody who's sitting in this room should have a nice, strong, what we call radial pulse. Okay, you can measure the rate. Typically, a normal heart rate for us is what? 60 to 100. Yeah, 60 to 100. More than that, you're worried that the person has lost some blood. There's a reason why their heart rate is high. But what if you can't feel a radial pulse? Because a radial pulse tells you that your systolic blood pressure is at least 80. What's a normal systolic blood pressure? I keep turning to you because you keep giving me the answers. (laughs) Yeah, so normal systolic blood pressure we say is over 100. Some people have a little low, so let's say over 100, okay? If you have a good radial pulse, it's at least over 80, all right? That systolic is at least over 80. But what if I can't feel my radial pulse? What, where do I go next, okay? The next place I go is to the groin, all right? You don't have to feel your groins right here. But go at, when you're at home, go home and feel that there's actually a, a pulse in, your, in what's called your femoral pulse, all right? and. Um, If you can feel, if you can't feel a pulse in the radial area, but you can feel one in the femoral area, that means your systolic blood pressure is at least 70. What if you can't feel one there? Then you go to the neck. This one's harder to feel. It's on each side of your windpipe, of your trachea. Okay? High up. High up at the, kind of right below your jaw. You have to stop talking. And you should feel a pulse there. It's actually hard to feel. It's very close to the side of your trachea. All right? If you feel none of these pulses but you feel a carotid pulse that means your systolic blood pressure is at least 60. Is that a good systolic blood pressure? No, No, that's very bad and now what that tells you is it's giving you information about maybe blood loss you don't see, okay? This person does have some blood loss which we'll talk about, places where he's bleeding from but there's all kinds of places he could be bleeding from that you won't know, All right, Because it's inside and Getting a sense of what someone's pulse is like, what their blood pressure is like, what's the quality of the blood flow to their skin, what does their skin look like, will give you a sense of how much potentially internal bleeding is happening. Okay? So the way I remember these numbers, by the way, is if you look at my body, my radial pulse is the one that's furthest from my heart. The next the femoral pulse is a little closer to my heart. And the carotid pulse is the one that's the closest okay so as the body's blood pressure is going lower and lower it's only able to produce a palpable a pulse that you can feel closer and closer to the heart okay does that make sense okay very good so this person has a ton of bleeding and one of the places he has bleeding is his scalp see all that lovely red blood coming from his scalp what i often see people doing when they're trying to hold pressure is doing stuff like this Okay. Does that, do you think that that is providing as many pounds per square inch as, this is a sock, that? Two fingers on a very thin whatever, okay? Which do you think is providing more pounds per square inch of pressure? That one, okay? Yet this is what you often see, lots of gauze. All that is doing is diluting the pressure. So the way you stop bleeding, Two fingers, direct, not above, not below, but directly over the source of bleeding, okay? If you want to put something between your fingers in it just to absorb a little bit of blood, great, okay? But nothing bulky. Two fingers, direct pressure, 10 or 15 minutes, no peaking, all right? People are always, it's the same when they have a nosebleed. They're like, uh, uh, oh, still bleeding. Uh. And what that does is it just disrupts that cycle. It allows a little bit of bleeding to happen. Whatever little scab might have formed, you know, from, from your platelets, which are the, you know, really what form scab will be dislodged and you're starting all over again. Okay. 10 or 15 minutes, two points, of, two fingers, not too bulky of dressing. Okay. Um, we're going to talk specifically about what you can do with the scalp if it's still bleeding. But let's take a look. Let's say the source of the bleeding is that it's got a lot of bleeding is an arm or a leg. And in this case, it's his leg. I have done abundant, I don't want to take this out, okay, right, I'm not taking this out, but it's still bleeding a lot. I have put as much pressure on it as I can for 20, you know, for 10 to 15 minutes, no peaking, and it's still bleeding a lot, okay, what can I do? Now, back you know, 10 years ago, before 10 years or 15 years of wartime showed us otherwise, we were really, the, generally speaking, the wilderness medicine community was against tourniquets because we always felt that if you put a tourniquet on someone, you're, you're, you're all but sacrificing that limb. What we learned is that tourniquets in these, you know, 10 or 15 years of wartime is that tourniquets save people's lives, all right? So this would absolutely be a reason why I would put a tourniquet on this person. Now, there are all these fancy schmancy tourniquet things, okay, that you can get. This is a paramedic kind of device here, okay, and the, what you do with it is you put it above, just above the level of the, thank you. <laughs> you know, and and what this, without, without getting too much, what this does is you, you're, 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 it provides this sort of like, Uh, ratchet, this would go all the way around by the way, ratchet for you to turn and provide more and more and more pressure. How do you know how much to do? When the bleeding stops, okay, because then you know you've stopped all the arterial blood flow. But I don't have this, right? Well, I have this, but you don't have to have this, okay, because there's other things that you can do. How do we improvise a tourniquet? All right, anything long, a sock, I mean, you know, the arm of a sweatshirt. I didn't want to cut apart someone's jacket, but that's what you would do, okay? you put it around, you tie, obviously that's not enough pressure, right? Because I can't possibly tie this tight enough to, because I'm trying to block off arterial flow. I want no blood to go to that right now because all that's going to bleed. Sticks, ample in the wilderness, right? So I don't want to take that one out. I've got to go get another one, <laughs> all right? And I'm going to make it shorter because it's going to intersect that stick, all right? And what I do is I tighten, Okay. And this is this is the way you can provide pressure. I sort of provided a, you know a little diagram of that, and you keep twisting this, keep twisting it until no blood is coming out of there anymore, and then I would use duct tape to tie this down. I'm not going to leave him with a tourniquet because that would make him very uncomfortable, and would be sort of medically, medical, ethically not tenable. Okay, so I'm not going to. But that's what you would do, and you would duct tape this down as best you can. All right. Now, one thing I would always caution you though is when you put a tourniquet on someone somewhere, somehow put a marker that a tourniquet has been placed on this, on that particular extremity. Because you can leave a tourniquet up for probably for about six hours with no consequence, really with not not much consequence. But if that person is being evacuated and transported and evacuated transported, sometimes that process actually takes longer than six hours. You don't want someone to forget the fact that there's a tourniquet up because that needs to be let down. Okay. Any questions on that at all? Sorry, the question was how, six hours is about the time limit. You leave a tourniquet up before you're concerned that the the arm or leg is going to die. And the answer is yes. After that you'd want to let it down. Give the the arm or leg a little chance to get some blood flow and put it back up. Unless the person is still bleeding like crazy and they're going to die from the blood loss. Because ultimately it's better to use the leg than to lose your life. That's what I think. So the question is do you use tourniquets outside of a remote situation? Ocean Beach is a remote situation. Okay. Ocean Beach to San Francisco General during traffic is 45 minutes. Okay? So we define wilderness medicine honestly as more than 30 minutes away from traditional medical care, from regular, you know, and um there are places in this city that are that. There's places in Marin County where I live that are that. You know, that are not like your what you would think is wilderness. So yes, you would 30. use a tourniquet to save someone's life after, if it's you know, you've done 10 or 15 minutes of pressure and it's not working, you know, then um that would be the time to put up a tourniquet. Honestly, if the bleeding is stopped, you can then take it down. So I, once I have put it on and I'm dealing with the person, I would leave it on. Like I, I'm not going to keep checking every hour honestly because um, chances are there's a lot of other things happening like someone this sick. I don't want to, you know, if you want to take it down, take a look for a moment and put it back up if you have to. But definitely within six hours you have to address it, yeah. What should you do if the tourniquet doesn't stop the bleeding? I don't know what to tell you. Do it tighter. You have to do it. will stop the bleeding eventually un- unless there's no bleed- blood left to bleed. You know, like it will stop the bleeding. You just have to keep doing it tighter. And that sometimes is a problem with materials. This is a sock. You're going to really have to do it tight. Maybe you need to do something that's less elastic. Try other things, you know. But you, tourniquets stop bleeding. Now, if the problem can arise if, if the bleeding is coming from a place you can't tourniquet, like his scalp. I mean, you know, that's not a good tourniquet, right? Okay. So we're going to talk about a technique with the scalp and I'll talk about that in just a little bit um, because I have to demonstrate on someone other than a short-haired person um, uh, of how you can stop bleeding in the scalp. Because the scalp bleeds like stink. Okay, it can bleed so much. It has such a good blood supply that oftentimes we'll see someone with a teeny little cut on their scalp and they've just got blood all over their face, their clothes, whatever, and it looks like a horror show. And it's this teeny little cut on the scalp. Okay. All right. Um, I mentioned all these other ways in which we can close wounds. We're going to talk about wound closure in just a moment. Um, but if you have someone who's just got blood oozing out of some place even oozing blood can ultimately become a lot of blood duct tape is a great thing to use just to close up like if you have someone with a big leg, gaping leg wound just duct tape it up okay while you because you don't want a person to be losing blood through that okay staples work crazy glue that's going to be we're going to talk about that a, a little bit also works could be hard if it's bleeding a lot though crazy glue doesn't work so well through lots of bleeding yes Sewing kit. So the question is, can you sew a wound um, uh, to try to stop the bleeding? Yes, you can, but it's not that easy. It's for emergency. It's not like a definitive wound closure. It's not like, okay, now we're done. We don't need to go to the hospital at all because now I've sewn up your wound. Um, it's not easy in a briskly bleeding person, and I would say some of these other techniques might be a little bit easier. Okay. One thing I'm going to do right now, which is a little bit off topic, but only because it's like a public health service I'm going to do. There are so many people now who carry these. Anybody know what this is? Okay, because of various allergies. And studies have shown that over 50% of doctors have no idea how to use an EpiPen over 50% of doctors have no idea how to use it. So in the general public, I can only imagine how large that number is. So this is an interlude. Sorry, I'm like using you as a table. It's terrible. It it's terrible. That's what happens when you're doctor too long, right? These are trainers. Don't worry. There's no medicine in them. This, in contrast, does have medicine in it, but it's out of date. But I just want to show you, this is what, you know, you have to take it out of the container, okay? This is a, this is a real EpiPen. But it looks exactly the same, Right? These are trainers. There's no medicine in them, so don't worry. All right? Key thing, this is like two steps. Key thing, when you hold an EpiPen, hold it like this. Don't put your thumb like this, okay? Because what if I get it the wrong direction, and I hold it not with the blue end up, but with the orange end up, and I put my thumb like this, and I go, bah! you know, where's that Epi going to go? Yeah, which, you know what? You're probably not going to lose your thumb, but more importantly, you've lost the Epi. It's not supposed to be in you. It's supposed to be in the, pa- in the person who needs it okay so hold it like this no thumb all right in order to activate it you got to take the blue part off all right and then no need to take off clothes not at all you go straight into the person's the largest muscle that you can think of which is the thigh and you hold it there for 10 seconds 1001 1002 1003 up to 10 seconds because this is an auto injector it takes that long to get all that epinephrine in them it goes through genes clothes anything and it's that simple Okay, so you can um, reset these like this, put the cap back on, okay, not to distract you while I'm doing this, but I want you guys to practice. Okay, these are, do it on yourself, do it on your friends here, you know, <laughs> pass it back. All right, this is my public service message here, all right. Okay, all right, and we're going to keep going on. Now you're going to know more than 50% of doctors right here. Yes. Uh, the question is, if an epipen is discolored, is it better to use it than not? Discolored, like this one, is discolored. If someone's, I'm going to go back to the old adage that you can't kill a dead person or a person who's dying. Yes, I would use a discolored one if that's all you have. But ideally, they're not discolored. They discolor after a year. That's why they need to be replaced every year. Okay. Okay. So A, B, C. Next is D. D is a little bit not as intuitive, but it stands for disability, and it and it's in this is the point at which we think about the person's neurological status. Okay, how is their brain doing? How are their is their spinal cord doing? And there's a couple things I want to know in this. The first thing I want to know is what's this person's level of consciousness? Can they talk to me? Edward, Edward, Edward's not even talking to me. Okay, so. First thing, I'm just, some, sometimes a person is just talking to you normally. That's like the top, of the top of the scale of level of consciousness. Sometimes they're talking to you, but they're like, my grandmother died seven years ago. You know, I'm like they're confused. They're, they think they're someplace they're not. Okay, that's not, not as good as being, told, as being conversant, but at least they're talking to you. Okay, that would be confused. The next level is you have to yell at someone to have them even open their eyes. I'm yelling at Edward. He's not opening his eyes. Okay, the bottom of the scale okay, it's actually not quite the bottom, quite on the scales when you don't do anything, is I try to um, inflict a little bit of pain and see whether or not that makes the person respond, okay? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pinch Edward here, uh-huh. okay? So I got him to do something. So he's not alert and conversant. He's not confused. He's not, you know, responding to my yelling at him to open his eyes, but he does respond to pain, and that's important. So I know his brain is really injured, Okay, because the only thing he's, resp- he t- requires that level of stimulus in order to to respond at all. And in fact, I'm going to, it tells me that um, the, one of the other tests that I have to do, um, I'm going to actually have to pinch him for the other test because I want to know if he moves his arms and legs. Is he paralyzed? Okay, so I pinch him and I see him. He's moving, he's moving everything. Okay, so that tells me right there that. At least for now, his spinal cord is intact. He's able to move his arms and legs, okay? So I've assessed his level of consciousness. I've assessed that he knows he can't, he's able to move his arms and legs. The other thing that I need to do is, I'm not sure my phone will work with this. Oh, is take a look at his pupils. That's why phone is great. I don't even carry a flashlight anymore, like at work, okay? Because I can look at his pupils with my light here and see. And all I'm looking for is, honestly, is symmetry, Okay, do his pupils look the same? Are they the same size? And when I put a light on it, do they react? Okay, if they, one of them reacts and the other one doesn't or one of them's a lot bigger than the other, there's a problem. Okay, there's a problem on one side of the brain. All right, and that's just telling me that it's even more urgent that this person get to medical attention. So for example, if someone asking me, should we do a land transport or a helicopter transport? And I know someone has one pupil bigger than the other, helicopter. Okay, because time is brain. All right, this person has got something going on, something pushing on his brain that needs to not be there. All right, whether it's blood or whatever, it it needs to not be there. Okay, all right. So the other thing that we think about in disability, in addition to, you know, getting a sense of can they move their arms and legs, um, what's the level of consciousness in pupils, is protecting their neck. We're not going to get in today to the art of moving someone, and in whom you're concerned about a neck injury. We're going to do that in a couple of weeks, all right? But we are going to talk about how to protect someone from moving their neck because pretty much anybody who has a serious head injury after an accident or who has, you know, you're seeing evidence of lots of chest injury, maybe injuries to their belly, clear lots of broken bones or if they're intoxicated, Assume they might have an injury to their neck, even if they tell you their neck doesn't hurt. I can't tell you the number of times I've had patients who've had lots of other injuries or they're intoxicated, you know, uh, they've got a big bad broken leg that's totally distracting them, and they don't have any neck pain at all and they have a terrible fracture in their neck. Okay, so protect someone's neck. How can we protect someone's neck? There's essentially three parts to protecting someone's neck. A collar, a collar keeps them from moving their neck in flexion and extension side rolls, which keep them from moving their head from side to side, and then a backboard. We're not going to talk about the backboard because that's only important for transport, all right? And transport we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, all right? So collar and side rolls. I don't have one of those. I'm in the backcountry. How do I improvise those things? Okay. This is another thing that I find to be super useful. You don't have to have it with you, but if you do, it's really helpful and you can buy these on Amazon for six bucks. Okay? These, are called, these are aluminum splints. They're flexible aluminum splints. Um, originally, they were called Sam splints, but if you buy the trademarked one, they're more expensive. Okay? But they can be used for all sorts of things. They're originally intended for um, splinting fractures. All right? But they can also be used to protect someone's neck. Check it out. You're going to have to help me. Now, he's gonna help me you obviously wouldn't want someone to help you but I'm just trying not to you know cause too much injury to him here or or pain to him here is you would just slip this under someone's neck okay you can cut this thing down but it provides a great collar for someone not to be able to flex or extend their neck right. what if I don't have this you don't need to have this you can use all sorts of things right. you can use a really bulky sweater Okay, you could do that because it could essentially keep someone from being able to flex or extend their neck. All right, you really want to bulk it up. That's kind of what someone did like right here. You can see they used blankets there. Anything that keeps someone from flexing or extending their neck. We're going to leave that there and say that. How do you keep someone from turning their head from to side to side? Okay, you need some side rolls. Water bottles are really good. Okay. You can use those just like this, right here to the side, and tape it all together with some duct tape, all right? Another great use for duct tape. I would tape all this together, all right? Onto the, onto the ground, all around, the pa- around the sleeping bag they may be sitting on, laying on, okay? Tie it all together. Other options for side, ho- side um, look at this. This will work too. Check it out, you know? You might have to cut these down. I'm not going to do that right here. But this will also keep the person from being able to move their head from side to side. This also has a lot of other uses, splinting and all sorts of things. Ski poles. What else can you imagine you might be able to, to use to keep someone from moving their neck from to side to side? Stish. Sticks, yeah. You could put a bunch of sticks together. So what if, huh? Yeah, boots, awesome. Put the boots on the side. Duct tape it all together. Okay, you want to create a system that stays with the patient, though, so it can't be rolling off the side. If you have stuff sacks or a backpack, you can stuff it full of stuff. You know, what kind of stuff can you stuff it full of? Uh, rock. rock. Oh, rocks, wow. <laughs> Rough medicine, right? <laughs> what else can you put in it? Huh? Clothes. I don't have clothes to spare. Dirt. Sand. How about snow? No. Why no snow? It melts. Don't use snow. Okay. Um, but uh, things need to be. So, dirt, sand, clothes, uh, all these things can be put, same thing, on both sides, duct tape together. Okay. To keep it all together. Um, if you come up with other ideas, please send them to me. I love, love bringing in other ideas. Um, yes. Yeah, pebbles maybe, rocks. Yeah, if you want to cushion it, you could. You could put rocks in there. You use what you have, right? Oh, the rocks themselves. Yeah, the rocks themselves. Yes, to put a boulder on each side. With a little, there's a little bit of cushion there. Remember, you don't want to give people pressure sores and such because they may be in that situation for a while. Be creative. I mean, so all you're trying to do is you're trying to prevent this and this, okay? So the better you and then duct tape it all together. All right, have I said that too many times? Duct tape it all together, okay. All right, so we've taken care of D as best we can. We've detected his neck, we've determined that he's actually got something really bad going on with his brain because he only responds to pain, okay. Um, but he's moving his arms and legs, at least he's not paralyzed right now. What comes after D Is E. E is, is sort of exposure, okay. This is where I was intended to talk to you about impaled objects, but I've already, isn't that horrible? It's just horrible. Okay, don't <laughs> remove impaled objects ever unless you, you know, I mean we've had patients come in, brought into the emergency department at San Francisco General with rebar sticking out of them and they're on their side and they got rebar because nobody wants to take out impaled objects because you have to be then prepared to take out, to, to, rip, to deal with whatever that thing is stopping up. Okay, the one thing that you'll often see happen is you'll see people you know, with all these fantastic things that have been done to save their lives to, you know, a, a pneumothorax relieved, uh, tourniquet up. And they'll be lying there um, with essentially inadequate protection against the cold. Because people who are bleeding, people who are in shock, get cold faster than you can imagine. So this case was, happened in an environment where the temperature was 85 degrees. Okay. Our patient was shivering. uh, the person who who flew off the front of her bike was shivering because people in shock, they they constrict their blood flow away from their skin, they feel incredibly cold, all right? You want to keep these folks warm. What if you don't have a whole lot of clothing to spare? If you do have a sleeping bag, that's awesome, okay? Because you can put part above the person and part underneath them. Don't forget the underneath. The ground is cold, dirt is cold, snow is really cold, okay? I've seen lots of people where they're p- covered up from the top and they're lying on the ground, all right? You want to protect people from the, from the co- conduction of cold on the ground. But what say I don't have clothing to spare? Um, you have a question, sir? Yeah, I'm just worried about moving <coughs> them too much to so try to get under them. To okay, so there is a technique the question was about you worried about moving them too much because of the concern about their spine. And you're right, because when you want to move someone who you are concerned, his spinal cord works right now. But if he has broken bones in his spine, you could potentially cause injury to his spinal cord if you don't move him, as, as I referred to in the last slide, like a log, okay? Um, there is a technique to rolling people um, who you're concerned about spinal injury um, that to protect their spine, But it is very important to do these things. Now, if if I want to minimize moving him, frankly, I would be reaching underneath him for things, okay? I would be reaching underneath him here, okay? I'm just trying to spare my back here rather than, you know, doing a lot of reaching underneath there, you know, okay? But you're absolutely right. You want to be concerned about the spine. This is another one of our, like, the MacGyver's friend, all right? And that is a garbage bag. We've talked about Safety pins, we've talked about, duct tape, and that is the garbage bag. The garbage bag is one of the most useful things, not only for, you know, back, you know MacGyvering things in the backcountry for trauma, but for survival as well. A garbage bag can be made into a shirt, okay? Imagine I have I've put a hole for the head and the arms here, and I've slipped in under, somehow underneath him, okay? I've put one um, on top. You can put one same on the bottom, and it provides a vapor barrier, you can also stuff it with leaves, dry leaves, okay? Um, and that'll provide insulation if you don't have clothing to spare anymore because you're in a cold environment, you need the clothing, and you don't want to create more victims, right? So you can do all sorts of things with a garbage bag. It'll, it'll, it'll keep in his own radiant heat, and you can insulate it, all right? So I seem to have misplaced my other garbage. But imagine now he has a garbage bag at his legs and over his top, and that's keeping in a lot of his heat all right Um, and that's a really important thing. Now if someone has broken bones, uh, we'll talk more about this as I said in a couple of weeks when we do our workshop on splinting and litters. It's a really nice thing to splint bones uh, because broken bones um, are painful when the ends are moving against one another and they also can bleed a lot. Depending upon the bone, those bones can bleed a lot, particularly the big bones, the ones like in the leg, um, you know, even ones in the upper arm, but particularly ones in the leg can bleed a lot. So splint them. Um, it's also really comfortable for people. Let's say, you know, he had broken his his right arm here. You can use their own, um, uh, uh, you can use all sorts of imp- improvisation techniques in order to, uh, Immobilize that bone. Just remember, um, you want to immobilize the joint above and below and make sure that however you're moving the the, the the bones or joints that you are actually checking to make sure that that motion didn't cut off a pulse, for example. So always be checking for pulses. We're going to talk a lot more about that in a couple of weeks, but I just wanted to allude to it because it is in exposure. When you see big bag broken bones, you want to immobilize them. Okay. And then the last thing I want to talk about um, is... Uh, uh, kind of also under exposure um, but it's about wound care all right Um, he has a really bad uh, scalp laceration I have put pressure on it and it has slowed down but it's still oozing a lot what can I do all right well in him we'll talk about in a moment his hair might be a little bit well actually maybe not this hair is probably not. If you have about an inch of hair, you can actually use this technique. But this is an excellent technique for closing wounds on the scalp to try to stop bleeding. This is not like the, what I call the definitive wound closure, meaning like, oh, we've closed it up. Now we can keep going on the rest of our backpacking trip, okay? Because all this is doing is it's stopping bleeding at this point, all right? Because wounds need to be well cleaned out for you to close them definitively. But I'm going to show you, actually, on... Um, I guess I could show you on my hair. Um, Imagine that my part of my hair is a wound, is a laceration, okay? What I want to do is I'm going to take hair on both sides of that laceration. I'm using it as a table. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to twist that hair, one side to the other, one side to the other. I'm doing a spiral. And then I'm going to rest it on each side of the cut. And now I have like a little little spiral on top. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take super glue from the hardware store. It's the same stuff that we use in the hospital. It just off-gasses a little bit more. Okay, it's a little stinkier. It's the same stuff. All right? I always, this is another thing I always have with me. I put a drop of that crazy glue right on top of that little spiral that I've made over the cut. I hold it there for a minute and then it's dry. And then I keep going. I do it again a little further down on the cut. I take hair on both sides, spin it around, rest it down, and I put another drop. Okay, And so on and so forth. And what that can do in the scalp is by closing it up, I kind of it's like putting pressure on it constantly. There's only so much space between the skin and the skull. And the idea is if you close it up, it might stop bleeding just from, you know, it'll bleed until there's so much pressure on that blood vessel that it can't bleed anymore. And sometimes you'll stop the bleeding just from that. Cuz there's only so much space in there. So I'm not, you know, it's not like bleeding in your chest or your belly where you can bleed your whole blood volume out. You're not going to bleed your whole blood volume out inside your scalp, only outside. And people can bleed an enormous amount of blood from their scalp. You really have to stop scalp bleeding, okay? Any questions on that? That's called the hair tie technique. This is me doing it on my son, who didn't have a cut, but that, that was my moulage cut right there. My poor son has the time to do all sorts of things. Do you have a question, my son? Yes. What if there's short hair? Right. So when they have short hair, then you can't use the hair tie. T- it's almost like I planted him there to ask that question. <laughs> you can't use it. You could probably do it on Edwards here, here. This is about as short as you can go and do the hair tie technique. But other things that you can do, you can try applying the skin glue directly. It's difficult because if there's a lot of blood, it doesn't, it doesn't work all that well. Um, uh, some of people, if you have access to like a, one of these little mini staples, a little mini stapler, frankly, will do it too. Okay. We use staples in the hair, um, and uh, duct tape doesn't work so well. So I would say one of these three techniques is what you would do in the scalp to close that up. All right. Yes. I've seen people take these little mini staplers from literally from the stationery store um, with them because that'll do the same thing. So have you? Are you? You un? Yeah. Literally, uh, you literally you you know how it has a top and a bottom. You just open it up uh, so that the the bottom part where you you, know, you put the paper in, and you would. Put the staple in. You take the bottom part out, and you're just using the top part straight onto their skin. And First when it compresses, it'll into skull. right into the uh, into the skin, mm-hmm. not into the skull. Yeah. Go the question ahead. was about how to use it. it, it Go won't. home and figure it out. Like you actually <laughs> don't do it on your skin, but you'll see you can so actually. It won't punch holes in the skull. It will just Mm-mm. No, out. no, no. Won't. The question: Will it punch holes in the skull? No, no, no. Skull is is way too hard for that. Yeah. Um, now. Uh, there's a lot. Of, there used to be a lot of controversy around what we should do with wounds in the wilderness. The problem, and, and there's lots of people who are really gung ho and like to close wounds in the wilderness. The problem with closing wounds in the wilderness is that you that you can try to clean them, and there's lots of ways we can clean things out. And I'm going to talk about it in a moment. But the problem is we're usually not good enough about cleaning things out in the wilderness, and the risk of closing something that you haven't cleaned out well is one of infection. If something gets infected, you've closed it, something gets infected, it has to be opened up, never to be closed back again with stitches, meaning that person, they will heal. Wounds will always heal, but they will heal pretty ugly, okay? If you leave something open, even if you don't get to medical care in time to close that wound initially, most wounds, if they don't get infected in five days, a plastic surgeon can close them, Okay? So if, you, if, if it doesn't get infected, you have the opportunity to have it closed delayed, late. But if it gets infected, it's over, all right? It's going to be left open for closure. So what I recommend is if you have a wound in the wilderness, clean it out as best you can, all right? And there's a lot of different ways of doing that, okay? Um, a good old baggie works, okay? put it, Fill it with water, close it up. Um, if you have an, I, I like to carry a needle for this reason because I punch a bunch of holes in the bottom of it, okay? And this provides forceful water, okay? You, what you're trying to provide is um, uh, uh, forceful uh, irrigation of wounds. You want it as close to the wound as possible and get a lot of forceful water in there. We have this saying in, in emergency medicine that the solution to pollution is dilution, okay? So as much water as you can through it, High force water. And if the water, if you have a question about whether the water is clean, um, use some chlorine tabs, which I always carry with me, in my, along with my duct tape, <coughs> safety pins, garbage bag, comes chlorine tablets, okay? Because they, they can use, you know, obviously to purify water for drinking as well. But you should use clean water, okay? Yes, sir? Once you uh, have some, some rubbing alcohol or something, could you so. Um, so the question is, uh, could you soak it with um, rubbing alcohol? If you really want your patient to scream, you can do that. <laughs> rubbing alcohol is just so, um, it's so painful and it is no better, frankly, than good old um, um, clean water and lots of it. Okay. Um, even things like Bactine. Bactine is, it has iodine in it. Iodine actually kills tissues. Uh, So we don't recommend uh, any iodine products at all. Alcohol is burning. Frankly, water, you know, if if it's just a superficial wound, some soap and water um, is just as good. It's just about using a lot of it. Really clean it out well. And we're not, I don't close wounds up in the wilderness. Now, that's not entirely true. I have on myself. But that's my own choice about me, and, I'm, you know, and it was on my face, which doesn't get infected very often, and I didn't want to leave the trip that I was on because it was a great trip. So, but, but that's not for, I, I, would, I would be very hesitant about making that choice. As I said, if it's for yourself, it's for yourself, but making it for somebody else, okay? Um, when do you evacuate people? We're not going to talk about the mechanisms of evacuation, but... Some of these things are very intuitive. If you feel uncomfortable with how sick someone is, they need to be evacuated. If they're having trouble breathing, they don't have a good pulse, they're, you know, they're not unable to walk, they can't talk to you well, you know, they have um, visible bone, an open fracture, or a clear dislocation, you know. Or, as I said, if you're unsure about the severity of their injury, they should probably be evacuated. How that evacuation happens is just the, the scope of that is way too big to talk Here, um, but it is very, I'm only will say that it is very difficult to evacuate people sometimes. This is actually how this patient was evacuated on one of these litters on a wheel here. It took a ton of people. and it was it was really um, uh, very difficult it 's very, very difficult to evacuate people um, and depends on 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 where you are, what the train is like, how remote it is, how many people are there. Um, can a helicopter land nearby? She had to be evacuated she sorry, I keep saying she because it was a she, but for, he for this purpose um, had to be evacuated like this on a trail to a fire road, to a car. The car then drove her. Or the ambulance then drove her to a helicopter landing pad where she was life flighted to to a hospital in Redding. So uh, it it can be very difficult um, to evacuate people. Uh, Just to give you the outcome for this patient, um, uh, she ended up um, almost completely severing her tongue. Uh, It was hanging on by very little. Uh, That's why she was bleeding so much out of her mouth. She broke... Um, a couple bones in her neck, a couple bones in her back. Um, she had a traumatic brain injury. She actually had a seizure when she went. Oh, I didn't want to make things that complicated, but she had a seizure when she went and hit her head, um, even though she was helmeted. Um, but she had, did well and now has three children and living in Lake Tahoe and has a lisp forever. Um, after her, she was in the intensive care unit for um, several days with a lot of tongue swelling after her tongue was repaired uh, in the operating room, but she's done well. Um, Two last things I want to leave you with. Um, This is my absolutely essential first aid kit. This is not like one that um, has all the things you would need on an expedition. This is the stuff that I've mentioned here that you can use to save someone's life. Okay? These are things that many of these things have multiple uses. Duct tape, safety pins, garbage bags. Um, The other thing that I mentioned in here are uh, where I didn't mention before, but condoms. Condoms are like super useful for more than just the obvious, okay? Because they have enormous elasticity. Um, I didn't bring. Last time I made a mess when I did this because I couldn't pour. But they can be used to carry water. They can be used for irrigation. They're really strong, okay? Just don't get the lubricated kind because your water is going to taste really weird. But they, it, and look how look how com- com- uh, you know if you need to carry water, look how compact that is, okay? So another great thing to carry with. Um, Notice a lot, uh, uh, not a lot on the wound care there, frankly. You can improvise a lot of things. Um, If if, if you're not carrying any prescription medications, um, uh, at the very least you're going to need something for pain and always Benadryl, okay? Because remember that EpiPen is only buying you time until the Benadryl kicks in for someone who has an allergic reaction. This is what saves the person's life right there. It's the Benadryl. That's what's working to stop the allergic reaction. The epinephrine that you guys are handing around just buys, you, buys time until that Benadryl kicks in. So you want to have that in your first aid kit, okay? And then some of the things that I've, I've mentioned here. And then I encourage people to add to this list, okay? Or to any of the other things that I mentioned that have multiple uses. Okay, this is just some of the things that I and others have thought of that you can do with safety pins, okay? Tongue extension, that's kind of an interesting thing. That's what we demonstrated here. But all these things, so carry, you know, you don't have to have a large first aid kit. You just have to have a first aid kit. You know, in fact, I try to pride myself on, on having mine as small as possible when I'm, when I'm backpacking. It's very different if I'm traveling internationally, but, but backpacking, you know, I carry these things that have multiple, lots of different uses, okay? I don't have a lot of specialized things, all right? Um, And that's that. Uh, Any questions? Oh gosh, lots of questions. Great. Yes, sir. You can get up. Oh, Big hand for Edward here. (laughs) Yes. So the question is, is it safe to use essentially stream water, river water in order to clean a wound? And the answer is yes. Because the thing that you're going to get, say, from a river or stream in the Sierra is Giardia. And Giardia doesn't infect wounds. Okay, so if the water looks, if it's that kind of, I'm talking about if you're in like another country and you're looking at water that maybe have a bacteria and it's just not good water, then you want to purify it. Good question. Yes. So that's a good question. The, way, the question is how do we stop the bleeding from that patient, from the actual patient's tongue? We had her on her side. She kept oozing the whole time and we put pressure on her tongue with my arm warmer. That's all I had. We, we didn't, I, didn't have, I don't carry gauze in my bike first aid kit, which is all we had. Uh, and so I had my arm warmer essentially putting direct pressure on her tongue which slowed the bleeding of her tongue but it was constant the whole time okay so this is a good question when someone crashes with a helmet do you recommend taking the helmet off? Um, it depends if the person is having a problem with airway breathing anything around the head or scalp and I need to manage that yes I pull it off if that person is talking to me I don't see blood, there's no noisy breathing, I don't see blood coming out from underneath the scalp. Because you know, you, if the scalp is bleeding, you're going to see blood streaming down. Um, then no, I actually might leave that on because that's going to help actually provide some stabilization uh, for that neck. Certainly if there's a visor, I pull it up. I want to be able to see the person's lips, their eyes, uh, and all that. Um, but if there's anywhere a question about A, B, or, or C issues around the head, take it off. Okay, so the question is have I heard of a product called Quick Clot? There are all these products now um, that are, it's essentially uh, gauze or there's powders that are, gauze that's embedded with material or powders that do the same thing that they um, promote the clotting of blood. They have saved the lives of soldiers in wartime because they make um, uh, cuts stop bleeding faster. Okay They can be stuffed into wounds, they can be held over wounds, and um, generally speaking uh, I don't uh, have you seen if you can buy those um, in can you buy them like on on yeah, uh, websites? Yes, done. yes, then um, you absolutely it, it would be a, a thing to have uh, in your in your first aid kit. I try not to put specialty things uh, in there. I mean I have access to that stuff, and i i put one, I put a couple in my first aid kit, but they have saved people's lives Do they have to be surgically removed no. No, they actually have, um, well, you don't want to leave gauze in people, but there are products that actually just dissolve. They're all organ- organic products that just dissolve in there. I wouldn't worry about that. Don't worry about things like infection when you're, when you're dealing. Remember, remember the order of things. The A, B, C, D, E is in that order because those are the order of things you need to survive. Don't worry about things like infection. That's, a, that's like F or G. You know, that's like way, you know, you're trying to save someone's life. So the question is about keeping someone warm and when is something so saturated that it's actually not keeping them warm uh, anymore because it's so wet. There are some things that keep you warm even when they're wet. Synthetics, wool, um, down is not one of them, okay? But that's the reason why the garbage bag, which disappeared, can be great because in addition to being a vapor barrier, it protects against moisture on the outside. All right, But it is a really important point that wetness keeps people will will cool people down five to 25 times faster than being dry so if the person is wet you want to get those wet that wet clothing off all right and honestly I'd rather have wet clothing off and the person naked in a garbage bag than than to be than to have wet clothing on uh, you know, if they have, if they have um, synthetic garments on, um, uh, like wool or, or synthetic, then they're probably fine in those wet garments. You just need to monitor that person. Those are, tend to pull that moisture away from their skin and tend to keep people warm even when they're wet. Down is not that. Cotton is not that, though. Bear that in mind. All right, if you have any other questions, I'll be here for a few minutes. Thank you so much. I hope you learned something. There we go.